Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Shada Almi, and I'm a research program manager with the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program. Thank you all so much for joining us. We know that time is a considerable resource, but it feels all the more so now. So thank you for sharing yours with us. I'm joined on screen today by senior fellow with the Aspen, oh, oh sorry, with Mia Birdsong, senior fellow with the Economic Security Project, whom I will introduce more fully momentarily, but just so that you know who you're looking at if you don't already. Mia, I'm so happy that you could be here with us. This conversation is part of a series that Aspen FSP is hosting every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the intersection of critical financial security related topics and the coronavirus. Next week, experts will discuss student loan debt relief. Other upcoming discussions include consumer debt and another on paid leave, a livable wage, and affordable care. We thank our funders, the MasterCard Impact Fund, in collaboration with the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, MetLife Foundation, the Prudential Foundation, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation for their generous support of today's conversation. We're recording the session, and it'll be available at aspenfsp.org. Since we want to focus the conversation today on the discussion between the speakers rather than their impressive credentials, the full speaker bios are available on our website and we will also tweet the address. Please engage with us using the hashtag AspenFSPLive and guaranteed income. Our team will be monitoring those tweets. AspenFSP started a deep dive on cash infusions last fall with our Consumer Insights Collaborative as some of our members, who you'll hear from shortly, have been providing cash infusions as part of their programming. We just released three issue briefs about guaranteed income and other cash infusions. Guaranteed income programs are those that provide a steady, predictable, and unrestricted amount of money to recipients, meaning that they can use the money in any way they like. It's a broad category of programs that encompasses others, such as basic income and universal basic income, as well as smaller scale cash transfers. But critically, giving people cash directly demonstrates the trust that people know best how to utilize these funds and provides them with the flexibility and the self-determination to save, spend, or invest accordingly. And the data reflects this. These three papers are our first published work on this topic, but it's part of an ongoing body of work, and we are looking forward to partnering with others. So please reach out to us. When we first started this work stream, we had no idea how much attention there would be on cash infusion programs by the time we released. We're seeing interest in these types of programs now from many stakeholders, ranging from policymakers and researchers to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and labor market economists. Each is approaching the topic from a slightly different angle to address a variety of overlapping issues, including growing financial insecurity, the economic impact of the coronavirus and people's ability to work, persistent poverty, and other concerns related to the changing nature of the labor market and technological advances that have displaced workers. But what's been clear is that many people are coming to the same conclusion, that cash infusions and guaranteed income may be a needed solution now, and for some, one that we should be considering beyond the immediate impact of this crisis. That is why we have framed the discussion today as two panels. The first, which grounds the conversation in the evidence and experiences of people, and the second, which turns to community and strategies to take it to scale. How many of you are still skeptical about giving people cash directly? Have you been rethinking that after receiving or not receiving the economic impact payment? What, if anything, underlies your hesitation in giving people direct money directly versus in-kind support? That's what we're here to discuss today. Some of these questions and the realities of our systems and our narratives today and why I'm so excited about the incredible panelists who have been in this space and are thinking about these critical issues. Before turning to our two panels, Mia Birdsong will provide some framing remarks to ground the conversation. She has a viral TED talk entitled, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, that has garnered 2 million views and a phenomenal four-part podcast called More Than Enough, which explores the transformative power of guaranteed income. Her upcoming book, How We Show Up, delves into connectedness and the specific tools and strategies we can use to build community, recognizing why so many people today feel disconnected and lonely, a topic that is particularly relevant today as we have to maintain physical distance between ourselves and others. Like many of you, she truly cares for and understands the deep-seated challenges we face in addressing persistent poverty and economic stagnation in this nation. 
When we first chatted about this topic, we immediately bonded over our strong belief that the missing ingredient in solving these challenges are the people that are impacted, those that are experiencing poverty, stagnant wages, and unpredictable hours. I'm going to turn it to her now. Thank you, Mia. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Um, so the COVID era has us all experiencing varying degrees of hardship and deep uncertainty. When it comes to the economic stability that most Americans are experiencing, there is a silver lining, a relatively small and unquestionably mighty group of people has already spent years advocating for one of the solutions we so clearly need now, cash. These activists, organizers, and advocates have been listening to and following the lead of people who are poor because they know that the people closest to the problem are also clearest about the solution. In the broadest of strokes, it is abundantly clear that we were not and are not now winning the war on poverty because we have made poor people the target of that war. We've blamed people for not figuring out how to navigate a rigged economy and an increasing number of us are paying the price for that. What got me interested in cash and guaranteed income specifically as a solution was its potential to address economic inequality. But what's kept me engaged in this conversation is that it invites us to think about and talk about deservedness, the meaning of work, dignity, and what America can and should be. We should all be heartened that cash is part of the government's response to COVID, as flawed as that response has been. And the folks joining me today can help us understand what a long-term cash infusion approach could look like because they were doing this work pre-COVID. Amea, Lauren, and Gila, welcome. Um, so several of you are at organizations that have been providing cash to people long before these emergency treks came out. Can you talk a little bit about why your organizations are using cash as a solution to economic injustice? Sure. Uh, my name is Lauren Renaud and I'm the Director of Analytics for the Family Independence in uh, Initiative. And we have been, as we say, trusting and investing directly in low-income households for over a decade. Um, we find we we want to just we want to trust that people know their own solutions to their problems and oftentimes the problem uh you know something that's getting in the way there is just a lack of cash resources right jobs don't pay enough um there's a number of reasons but people just sometimes need a little bit of cash to help see their own goals and their own path to prosperity and to economic mobility and we find that by trusting people with their own solutions we it's, I don't have, you know, I don't personally have the answer to each individual person's situation, and I'm not going to presume to. So it's much better for us to just trust in people and their own communities and their connections and, uh, and just recognize those relationships that are already there. Um, I can build off that and just say, I echo, we echo here at Lyft, the ethos of everything Lauren just said. Um, so, um, first, I just also want to say thank you to Aspen and Tania and Tersheda for uh, using this moment to have a conversation on something that I think is so important and so prescient at this, mo at this moment in time. Um, so, at Lyft, we operate a coaching program where we work with parents of young children for up to two years as they work on financial and career goals for themselves and for their family. And um, over 20 years, after over 20 years of experience working with families, um, we have seen that what an impact financial volatility, um, lack of a financial cushion, and uh, unexpected financial shocks can have on and impeding people's ability to move forward, make progress, break out of a broken system that is built to, to not be empowering. Um, and we kind of saw that in two ways. The first was um, even pre-COVID, the systems and the structures that people were operating within made it so that even small financial hiccups or, um, or shocks could be potentially catastrophic. So for example, like a car breaking down leading to a missed shift at work um, where you don't have PTO or um, other types of supports could lead to a, lock, uh, a lost job. And then it just like ripple effects from there. Um, so that's the first, it's just the, the catastrophic and outsized impact that small financial shocks can have when, you're, when you exist in a system of financial insecurity and lack of cushion. 
Um, and then the other is not having the liquidity cash on hand makes it near impossible to make investments in the future. So nearly impossible to then break out and, and take those steps forward. Um, so because of that, and also rooted in our like core ethos of trusting families, trusting parents that they know what's best for themselves, for their families, um, we started piloting a direct cash transfer um, program into our, in our model about five years ago. And three years ago, we scaled that nationwide. Um, and we call it Family Goal Fund. We provide families who participate in our program $150 every three months um, that they're able to use in any way that they see fit towards any expense that they, that they think is um, and know is most important for their families. Um, and over that time, we've been able to provide over $370,000 to 750 families. And we see that it works, that when you give people money, they spend it on investing in themselves, investing in their family, and making progress. Um, and so that's, that's how it came into Lyft's program. So, so both Lyft and FII, and let's be real, like 30 years of um, other piloting and projects have shown us that if we want to solve for economic injustice um, and kind of all the outcomes that we care about, whether it's education or health or savings, um, we know cash works. So it's not as if this is new. So, um, and Amaya, I'd be particularly interested in hearing your response to this. I'm curious why you all think this has not happened yet. Why don't we have this? Well, that's a really great question. Mia, yeah, thank you for having me and Aspen FSP and uh, Shada. So, um, before I was an elected official, I did research in the connection between disaster and poverty. And one of the things that is true over the course of our country's history is that um, we make wealthy people asset owners whole after disaster. And um, we basically tell working people, poor people that, hey, if we give you too much, um, you're going to get addicted to this help. You're going to, we're going to create dependency. So we want to, we don't want to create um, uh, any precedent here. This goes back to debates on the congressional floor back to the 1780s, um, where through private claims of action. So there is a long narrative of this, and even if you look at what the Federal Reserve did with and the CARES Act, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve pumped trillions of dollars of liquidity into the markets to backstop corporate debt to provide banks and hedge funds with liquidity. And we've given people the equivalent of a gift card with a one-time $1,200 check. This is, um, this is a, this is a long, there's a long history of this. And government has institutionalized this idea uh, that some people deserve more than others. And this principle just needs to be eradicated. We need to start over and start trusting people. Thank you. So Gila, um, I know that Lyft has had a journey, right? Like Lyft did not start as an organization that was providing people with cash. Can you talk a little bit about how, like what your journey was? Because I think that, you know, perhaps it's, it's, we'll learn something about what the country needs to do from the journey that Lyft had. Yeah, so I think that um, it's really rooted in many, many years of partnering with parents and hearing from them about what uh, barriers they're confronting, what resources were like at their disposal and that they could access um, to help overcome those barriers and what wasn't uh, available. Um, and as I said, so 20 years of working and partnering directly with community members and families um, and seeing that the resources that they were um, had access to or were trying to access simply were not meeting the needs. Um, and that is because they were trying to access resources like in the social safety net system that are rooted in such a deep lack of trust and, uh, and dignity uh, in treating people with the respect that they deserve. So putting up so many barriers and restrictions on how you can access funds when you're eligible for them, what you can spend them on, um, made it really difficult for people to actually use resources and kind of break down barriers that um, is what they actually needed in order to make those steps forward. So uh, one example that I can share is um, we had a member who, um, due to a minor paper mix-up, lost her staff benefits the following year. Um, then coupled with unexpected hours, um, her, her uh, hours being unexpectedly cut at work, put her behind on rent and then at risk of eviction. So this all stemmed from a system that, uh, that uh, levies severe penalties on minor things like 
uh, paperwork mix up and meant that um, that our member wasn't able to cover rent and then had like ripple effect implications. Um, and being able to just have that like that cushion and that flexibility to not have that fear of even like the smallest things of of a missed like date or a, you know or uh, running two minutes late leading to a late fee here um, makes it having that fear that constant fear makes it very very difficult to have brain space and to have the time to think about and plan for anything um, moving forward. Can um, Amaya and Lauren, can you also speak to kind of what you know about um, what ca the difference that cash actually makes in people's lives, like, you know, kind of pre their lives, pre having access to flexible cash and then what happens afterward? Uh, we we see we see a multiplier effect, you know, oftentimes folks uh, don't just spend their money and I'd add also their time. Um, but don't just spend it on themselves, but also spend it on other people in their community and their both their both their personal connect their personal connections and also their their wider community. I think that that example that Hila shared about um, you know a, a car breaking down and that leads to someone losing their job is sort of a perfect example of where if you were trying to to create a targeted um, you know jobs program or something, right? You're gonna miss that need there, where someone just needs to fix their car. We've actually had a like one of the stories we've heard lately was someone who um, uh, like started a new job. They were supposed to start a new job March first. The the job fell through, and now they are using some of the the funds that we made available to drive to job interviews, drive to job to places where they can um, pick up food. In some cases, they're picking up food and giving it to other neighbors that they know around them who can't drive to go get the food, right? And if you tried to just do a targeted food program or a targeted job program or something, you would have missed that both these connections and relationships already, someone could, someone's already ready to do that work. They just needed that cash to make it happen. Yeah, I can just build on that. So. You know, we knew before COVID that four in 10 Americans, only four in 10 Americans had $400 in the bank for an unexpected bill. We knew that one in three Americans were living check the check, even those making $100,000 or more. One in three parents uh, can't afford to buy diapers. And, you know, diapers and wipes, you can't buy with, with SNAP. So one, you have these institutional barriers, this prejudice that's built in the policy. So what do we know? People are gonna buy diapers with their money. Um, one quote that stands out to me from my work in disaster post-Katrina was, I think it was in the New York Times, a woman who said, you know, what people don't understand about poverty is that you have to be rich to be poor because everything costs more where we live. We don't have the same choices. We live in food deserts. There's a banking desert. Um, so if you can, kind of understand that 360 view of people's lives and what it's like in a community if you live where you have ample access to things take away those things and think about what you might do and, and that's what people will spend their money on which is to take care of themselves their family um just like any other human being would so um you know we now have seen that the government has responded um to this disaster by to some extent um giving people access to cash um, can you all talk about what you think is working well about what's the government response, the federal government response has been, um, and what where we need to improve? Um, so that's a two-part question. Sure. I have some, uh, I have some initial thoughts. Go. Uh, well, first is um, yes. So the government and philanthropic like response has shown that cash is on the table and cash is a solution. Um, but this isn't a solution to just a like a once in a century emergency um, situation that um, the challenges that we're seeing and the consequences, the economic, financial, et cetera, consequences that we're seeing because of COVID are exacerbated and more acute and more visible because of the pandemic. But the fractures and the broken system that that um, are like causing those consequences existed before and they'll exist in the future. And all COVID did is shine a light on those fractures and exacerbated them. So it didn't, the COVID didn't break the system. The system was already broken and it will continue to be afterwards. So what the government, uh, what the government and philanthropic response shows is that cash is a solution, but currently, and I think in answer to your question, Mia, the, the view of it and the narrative of it is yes, 
because of this moment and because of the quote emergency. And I think that's the narrative that we have to like shift away from and say, it was working before, we all know that because of the work that our organizations have been doing and it's a solution for after as well. Thank you, Lauren and Emea. Yeah, I'd say something that's, uh, that's going well is giving people cash and putting that option on the table and making that a real, uh, a real option as well as that added $600 in, uh, to unemployment, which I sort of think of as cash as well. Um, what's not going well is how they're getting the money out to people and how quickly that is happening or not quickly. Um, especially on the unemployment side, it's pretty much by design, kind of as Amaya said, we, you know, we make sure that rich folks are made whole and we do not, we want to make sure that it's difficult for low-income folks to be made whole or to be, to reach access resources. So we are now seeing, you know, some, some folks who uh, maybe, maybe never thought that they would be one to be receiving uh, government assistance are now seeing that we've intentionally designed a system that makes it difficult to access government assistance, even when you're eligible, even when we said the money is going to you. Um, you know, we at FII have seen over the years that the, we, you know, we've made tweaks to how we give out money and the easier we have made it to give out money, the easier we made it to access money, Families have accessed more funds. They've used it wider. We've seen more impact in their community. Um, now, as we are giving out emergency funds, we have two different methods that we're doing that. One is through a screening process, and one is through um, uh, partnering with local nonprofits to give out access codes that someone can take to our website and get that money right away. And in that case, we're also rep uh, recognizing that local knowledge in all of these communities as well. So the the idea that cash is on the table is great. We need to make it significantly easier for people to access those funds. Yeah, and I'll build on that as well. Um, look, there's been some narrative change, right? Cash is on the table. Speaker Pelosi was talking about ongoing cash. What? So that's that's a positive step. The thing that we need to do really is the solutions needs to need to match the scale of the crisis, and we can't go back to the pre-COVID economy. Um, that economy was fundamentally broken. The only reason we didn't talk about it in that way is because we had booming stock market numbers and corporate profits, but for working people, you had an endless supply of gig economy jobs and low-wage uh, service sector jobs. Um, so I'm going to quote Michelle Landis from, uh, from Stanford here. What poverty policy needs is disaster relief. We have to rethink how we do social welfare policy, remove um remove the uh prejudice and the stereotypes and just you know this is about we if we if we say we rise and fall together then we have to act as such so there are a couple of narratives i feel like um you all keep circling back to um one is like the very deeply entrenched narrative we have about um why people are poor right that if we look at kind of our um our approach to economic injustice, it focuses on like something being wrong with poor people. Um, when in fact, the reason that people are poor is because they don't have any money because all of the wealth is with the wealth hoarders. Um, and then the other thing um, I hear us saying is that um, the system is broken. In my view, the system is actually, I mean, if especially given Amaya's amazing and horrifying kind of historical context, the system is actually functioning as it was designed to function. Um, so if we think about the narrative we need in order to kind of combat this idea that um, poor people are poor because of personal failing, right, which is, let's be clear, laden with racism and sexism, um, and this idea that the system is not actually broken, right? It's functioning the way it should. What are what do you feel like are the narratives that we need um, to be putting forward in order to actually shift people's minds? For me, I find there's uh, I find combining both kind of hard quantitative data with you know with personal stories and how can we take some of the stories from the families that we've worked with to to highlight what's actually happening in the underlying numbers. And I, I mentioned the underlying numbers because I think part of the, 
you know, there, there have been a, a lot of visualizations lately on, you know, wealth and, and how just really, really how big billions of dollars are versus how much money the average person makes in a year or the fact that Bezos has been profiting by the hour in the pandemic as everybody else has been crashing. Um, so I, you know, I think sometimes the, the hard numbers and the visualizations of those hard numbers um, can help kind of crystallize what as you were saying, the system as designed. This is the system as it is designed, and this is what it is doing. And I think that this crisis moment right now is an opportunity, as as Helis was saying, that this is highlighting all those fractures and and cracks that were already there. Can we use this to to point people at those things as they're seeing it right now and emphasize that this is not solely because of this crisis, but really these are all pre-existing things coming to the surface. And I think elevating it, it's um, we're in a moment now where that story and like that experience can be felt and it, it is seen more widely because um, the way people experience uh, those fractures, those systems that are built the way and are working the way that they're supposed to supposed to work um, is now affecting a whole lot more people that did not expect to ever have to interact with them or like experience them um, and now see and what it what it takes. To, to try and like weave out the, the resources and the supports from the way the system is built. So it's, it's um, the scale of personal experience and the scale of like palpability is much greater now. Um, and I think the other two is like highlighting stories and experiences that show how uh, having money or access to money or none regardless of whatever else is going on in the background, is often the difference between being treated with dignity and not. And how that, that one thing should never be and should not be the, the deciding factor of how you are, of how you're treated. Um. Yeah, I think um, so much of the sort of economic system we've set up it, it makes people believe that it's only about you, what's in front of you, what's it in, what's in it for me, uh, versus, you know, how are we going to lift our communities up? And I think to the fact that we've got an unemployment that is greater than it was 80 years ago, and it's likely to increase, um, and that most people, uh, some of these industries are going to go away completely, and that some jobs will change. Um, there is, I think, a unique moment uh, with the right leadership to rewrite the rules. And that doesn't mean necessarily you have to do away with markets. It just means that you can make markets work for working people. It's the problems that we face today, in my opinion, at least, is that it's, it's based on a set of rules. And who gets to write those rules? If we let you know, financialization and wealthy people, corporations, and banks decide what the rules of the market are, and then dictate to government what those rules are, we're going to keep getting into trouble. And so working people need to get involved in the political process and the policymaking process. And we need leaders to stand up and say, there is a different way to do this economy that prioritizes people over profits. Can I build right, on what Maya said? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, that no. the, I, I just want to build on that solidarity and connectedness piece, because I think that this time is really emphasizing that, right? It is in my personal health interest to make sure that people in my community have the economic ability to shelter in place if they can, that people in the grocery store have health care, all of that, right? We are at a time when it is really in everybody's interest, even people who have, through these narratives that we tell each other, right, thought, I'm not poor, and those are other people, and I am a temporarily embarrassed millionaire who's one day going to make it, that we are hopefully seeing some more of that connection and why I have to care about your liberation and your economic mobility as well as mine. Yes, I appreciate that so much. Um, we've got three more minutes. Um, is there anything that you all um, feel like we need to add to this conversation before we pass it on to Rachel and her panel? I just say it's not about just this moment and we need to be really also thinking about what does cash look like in an ongoing way. Um, as you know, FII, as we said, we've been doing this before and we're going to continue doing it. And uh, we welcoming everyone to join us on that but it's really important to not think that cash is a thing we're only doing in an emergency um, um i think another thing oh sorry go ahead hila i was i was going to echo that and say don't don't let the 
um, as Shada, I think, said at the top of the, of the call, there's much more attention on this now than we ever expected. Don't let that dim um, once, once we start coming out of it. And I'll just say one thing quickly to everyone that's on this webinar, you know, you are influencers, whether in philanthropy or in government or, you know, or whatever sector you, you're, you're dialing in from, you have an opportunity to advance narrative change individually within your organizations, with your board members. Please do so because that's how this stuff builds up. It's from the bottom up. And I'm really hopeful that you will take, draw from this conversation and push, prod, provoke, and help shift narratives. You know, I think the other, one of the other things that, that we haven't actually touched on that always comes up is that as I've been having conversations since when I was a VP at FII and as I've been doing this work about guaranteed income, um, one of the questions we always hear, right, when we talk about cash is how will we pay for it? <laughs> so I just want to like be clear that we are the wealthiest nation on the planet um, it is not a matter of can we pay for this, right? We know we can. Um, and I think part of what I hear you all saying is that, you know, it is not about uh, continuing to kind of like tax poor and middle class people in order to pay for this, but there actually is a tremendous amount of wealth if we look at, you know, the markets um, and we, we can see where that wealth is concentrated and it is not with the people who are actually generating um, that income. It is that with the people who, you know, own the means of production. Um, so that it's not a question of whether or not we can pay for this. It is a question of, do we have the will to do it? And do we actually believe that human beings deserve um, what they need to have a life of well-being? Um, and obviously, Absolutely. more of us believe they do. <laughs> Um, thank, thank you, Amaya, Lauren, and Gila so much. I am going to pass the baton to one of my faves for many years, Rachel Black. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much, Hi. Mia. And I'm, You're welcome. Hi, good to see you. <laughs> Um, I'm going to invite the rest of panel two to open up their cameras and join us here. And thank you to Mia and panel one for setting us up um, so well for this conversation about taking uh, the need to address cash to scale uh, by setting us up with a defining set of values around dignity and deservingness and the need to establish community-based leadership uh, to get us there. So. Welcome to everybody. Um, I think that we know that we are not going to be able to crack the nut of getting cash to scale in 25 minutes, um, but I think what we can do is really define the pillars um, that we need to grow this conversation around. You know, we need to have inclusive and effective payment systems to deliver cash to people. We need to make sure that the underlying policy is equitable and sufficient and we need to make sure that both these systems and policies are you know, uh, designed around the needs and supported by the leadership of the people um, that these systems and policies are supposed to be supporting. So each of you owns a very specific piece of that and uh, I appreciate all of you for joining. Um, Aisha, I really wanna start with you. Um, I have to imagine that watching all this attention to cash unfold must be a little surreal. Um, you've staked this ground out for a while now, uh, while everybody, I think, is um, maybe just kind of astonished to the scale of other Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck and the absolute insufficiency of our existing policies um, to help people avert hardship. Um, when their incomes aren't enough. Um, this is very much um, what has motivate, mo motivated you around the Magnolia Mother's Trust, um, not only to provide direct cash um, to some of the moms that you're supporting, but to very intentionally connect that to a critique of these existing policies and help to define what, uh, what should come next. So, um, so let me put that to you. I mean, how how have you seen your moms kind of experience this moment? And um, what are some of um, really the, the observations that you're making about how well our existing social safety net is, is performing at this particular moment? 
Yeah, no, and thank you, Rachel, and you know, to the rest of my panelists, thank you for this conversation. So it's a couple of different pieces in there. So I'll try to unpack it as best I can. As far as how our current social safety net is responding to this moment, you know, unfortunately, I feel like we're failing. Um, cash is a conversation that we are now having, which really brings joy for those of us who have been working in this ecosystem of thinking about cash for the last several years. The fact that now it is a piece of the normal narrative or it's becoming more normalized, it's really exciting. But also in the same breath, the fact that we are continuing to have conversations around deservedness, regarding how we'll pay for it, regarding moralism, regarding how much it's needed, those pieces are disheartening um, because we are in the, in the midst of a very real national global emergency and we keep pushing the ball down the road when we have an opportunity to address it. We did the first stimulus package. Now there's a bill with an additional one-time payment. But what we're seeing is that individuals need money reoccurring, they needed monthly through the course of this emergency, and they needed to be sig significant enough to really address the magnitude of this moment. And we're not doing that. And so uh, what we are seeing, you know, in our work with the Springboard to Opportunities and particularly Magnolia Mothers Trust, we're having an opportunity to see in real time what guaranteed income looks like in the midst of a crisis. The individuals that we work with are still receiving their $1,000 a month. They'll receive that for one year and their ability to tell us that they are still able to not only take care of their basic needs or they're able to have stability right now, but they are also thinking about prosperity in the future. And so that is what the gift of a guaranteed income is. And that's really what we could be giving right now to the American people. And we continue to set up roadblocks and make it a little bit more difficult for individuals to get to what they need to on the other side of this. Thanks for that. Um, Charlie, I feel like this is a natural segue for you and thank you for stepping yeah. up and agreeing to be the, uh, the face of the entire federal policymaking apparatus, which is what I understand you. Oh, please don't, don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is actually surprised. great timing, right? Um, so um, Aisha was uh, giving some critique about not only the existing social safety net, but maybe some of the shortcomings of the first round of um, economic impact payments um, that House just dropped yesterday, um, a new uh, stimulus package, including another set of payments. Um, your boss, Mike Bennett, has really kind of um, been leading a lot of the efforts around cash-based policymaking, and I'm really curious from your perspective how you've seen that evolve over time, you know, especially in this current moment, and what your expectation is for really kind of retaining some of some of the support and the buy-in that cash has right now moving forward. Yeah, thanks. That's really helpful, and you know, I'll try to be brief. I have a lot of thoughts, but uh, obviously, it won't surprise you. I agree with a lot of what Aisha said about we've just been underdoing support, especially for low-income families, for a really long time for a variety of reasons. That hopefully we can turn the corner on and sort of say, look, cash works. Um, and I think the experiments that she's doing, and that so many of you all on this on this webinar have been doing for a long time to show the evidence about how people use the money and how they stabilize their lives is so important for building support. So. You know, quick overview of where we are. Um, as Aisha mentioned, we, we passed a number of bills. The biggest was the CARES Act, passed about six weeks ago. That included the $1,200 payment per taxpayer, $500 per child under 17. For, uh, that's sort of what people have been referring to as the stimulus checks. We're coming up on the next bipartisan package, just timing-wise. It's not gonna happen before Memorial Day is sort of what I'm hearing, so likely in June. Um, and that could be the last sort of major train leaving the station for a while. Um, and so we've got to really fight hard to make sure that the support for people who really need it is maximized in that next package. So the House bill released yesterday was sort of an opening bid. There are a couple of good things in there um, on cash payments, you know, $1,200 per taxpayer and $1,200 per dependent, which is important. So we don't have that disparity of $1,200-$500 for um, dependents. Uh, it includes up to three dependents. And importantly, it doesn't leave out, you know, kids who are 17 or 18 or Kids in college, it doesn't leave out non-child dependents, which is which is what the previous uh, payment did, unfortunately. Um, and also importantly, one of the things you all may remember is when, when we had that debate over the CARES Act, the first version of the payment that was introduced would have given half as much to low-income 
taxpayers as to middle income taxpayers, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense and would have left out the lowest income taxpayers entirely. And so we fought really hard. And I think it's important to give credit to a few folks on the other side who did too. Um, Romney and Senators Romney and Hawley both fought and we managed to make sure that the payment was going to be the same, whether you were low or middle income. So that was important. And this sort of continues that. Um, Delivery, uh, as was mentioned in the previous half hour, is really important. The administrative systems, we've been pushing really hard to make sure that these payments go out automatically to people who are too low income to file taxes, but are on Social Security, Disability Insurance, uh, Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, and Veterans Benefits. We're going to keep doing that. Um, in addition, uh, you know, as was mentioned earlier, is it's, it, the direct payments is one way to get cash to people. We feel like it's also incumbent on us to make sure that you know you have additional support for people who need it the most. And so, one thing my boss has been fighting for for a few years with Senator Brown uh, is an expansion of the child tax credit, um, you know, into what is basically a universal child allowance. So taking out the income constraints at the low end and saying, if you have a kid, you have expenses, and they're going to be much bigger than this tax credit's going to be, but this tax credit can help you. And so we were really heartened to see that the House bill includes basically a one-year version of our bill, be $300 a month for kids under six, uh, $250 a month for kids over six, so that's you know $3,600 a year um, per child under six and $3,000 a year for per child over six. Um, and uh, it includes an expansion of the earned income tax credit for childless workers, which hasn't expanded since the 90s, um, early 90s, and it allows what's called a look back. So if your income's gone down this year and your earned income tax credit would have gone down with it, we say, no, you can look at your 2019 income and you'll just get the payment you would have gotten based on that income. So that's really good. And the last piece is unemployment benefits. Um, you know, there's going to be this cliff if we don't act at the end of July where the $600 additional payment will go away. Uh, obviously, that's completely untenable at a time when people, through no fault of their own, you have 30% of the country is unemployed right now if you look at the real-time estimates. Um, and so we've been fighting really hard to tie that to the economy and say this should continue until the economy heals. Unfortunately, the House bill doesn't have that, which is called a trigger or an automatic stabilizer, but they do extend the expanded unemployment benefits into next year, which is good. So, you know, we're trying to really set the table for this next package to go big on cash in a lot of different ways. I think the House bill is a good, good opening offer there, but we're going to have to fight really hard in the Senate because obviously we don't control the majority and, and we're going to have to deal with the White House and the administration that are, you know, somewhat hostile. Very diplomatic. Um, so how much of, I can see Aisha uh, just visually responding to the words that you're saying. So I don't want to put words in her mouth. I mean, Aisha, is that enough? That was enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> like your words were enough. You know, no, it's not enough. You know, um, all of the, um, all of the intricate pieces of the bill. I definitely appreciate, I appreciate all of the hard work that individuals are putting into it. But at the end of the day, individuals need a guaranteed income. They need it to be large enough where they can address their basic bills. So if we know that in the majority of the country, rent, average rent is $1,300, $1,200 is not going to get it. It needs to be sustained over the course of this emergency, which at this moment, is it 12 months, 24 months, 36 months? I was having a conversation with a friend. She was like, we need to be prepared for four years. So it needs to be sustained over the course of that. And a lot of the qualifiers needs to be removed from it, in my humble opinion. And I honestly think we can figure this out. If I figured out how to give individuals a guaranteed income with my small organization in Mississippi of all places, all of these really smart lobbyists and all of these really brilliant people with an abundance of resources can figure this out. I'm rooting for us. Well, I think, so we put I think, Aisha in charge of everything. What's that? That's why we put Aisha in charge of everything. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, I think there are a few lawmakers who have the intensity and I think grit and creativity that you have. So we could we could use more folks like you up here, uh, frankly. But I, I do agree with you that we should be tying the the um, support to the economic conditions, and we've put forward a bunch of things on unemployment insurance, uh, food assistance through SNAP. Um, what's called FMAP, this is very in the weeds, but there's a federal matching 
to state Medicaid. So right now we're seeing people you know, have to go on Medicaid rolls because they don't have employer-based health insurance anymore. Maybe they didn't have health insurance to start with and they have additional healthcare needs. Being able to match what the state is doing at a greater rate will allow the state to meet those needs. And so we want that to also be more generous and to continue through the end so that we're providing healthcare, especially to the people who need it most. And unfortunately, yeah, we're sort of in a place where we're gonna be running into these cliffs going forward. And I think on a more permanent basis, um, you know, we're with you on, yeah, the, the, we put this bill out in 2017 with Sherrod Brown, the American Family Act, because it was a problem in 2017, right? And our, our bill would, in one fell swoop, cut child poverty by 40%. It provided a monthly payment that would continue. Um, and, and we feel like that's kind of the opening here is to take out some of the moralism that Aisha was talking about, where, where people have all these really nasty narratives that turn out not to be true, um, and say, look, you, you, we got child poverty rates that are unconscionable in the richest country in the world, we can cut child poverty by 40% with one bill in a year immediately. Um, and then once you see the money, you know, the money isn't going to the kid, the money's going to the parents. And once you see the parents spending the money as we know they will spend it, which is well, uh, I think it will open up a, a much broader conversation about like how can we go and support everyone in this country because you know we gotta, we gotta be in this together. Before we bring in uh, Prashanti, um, Charlie, um, you know, you mentioned that you know the fight in the Senate, you know, uh, is is going to be an uphill battle, right, for um, for the the stimulus package that the House um, has just taken up. Um, you know, given that cash is kind of in this uh, big tent moment, right? You do you describe sort of the bipartisan expansion of some of the work that you know your boss has been leading for a while. Um, how durable do you think that is outside of this emergency relief moment? I think it's important that people stretch those muscles in a moment like this, and I think because of the way this catastrophe hit so quickly and so broadly, I think it takes out a lot of those really awful conversations that we've seen happen since the 90s. And I do think once you sort of cross that Rubicon and say, we shouldn't be conditioning this on A, B, C, D, E, F, G, we shouldn't, you shouldn't have to show up every other week in some, you know, badly run office and blah, blah, you know, we were not gonna put all these barriers in your way and make it fill out all these forms. Once you've crossed that, Politically, I do think it builds a little bit of an ability for folks to kind of stretch those muscles and then come back next year or maybe the year after and sort of say, okay, what can we do going forward and on a permanent basis? Because, and I, I do think it's important to see people like Senator Romney, Senator Hawley, Senator Rubio, others who are sort of grappling with, you know, okay, obviously there there aren't really good new new ideas coming out of the White House these days or or the party writ large. And so I think it's kind of like, where are they going to go? Um, and sort of how can we build that support? Because the only way this stuff's going to get done is if we're able to, and, and not just get done, because we can get something done with 51 votes in the Senate, we can jam it through through reconciliation, but it will come right back out if we don't build the political support to keep it and make it sustained. And I think that's true in everything we face. And so I feel a little, you know, it's hard to be hopeful these days, but I feel a little bit of hope that people are starting to sort of feel like, okay, I'm not gonna lose my job if I speak out in favor of like unconditioned cash assistance to every person who needs it. Um, and, and I think that's helpful to build the support going forward. Thanks, Charlie. Um, Prashanti, I'm really glad that you're part of this conversation. You know, uh, I think that there are some really key insights about um, how well we are able to move money when we need to um, that, you know, that have been surfaced, right, by some of the shortcomings of uh, the previous stimulus package, right? People who aren't already, you know, connected to formal financial services. Um, we know that the way that the stimulus payments were structured, right, um, it was easiest and quickest for people who already had a tax filing status and already had direct deposit established. Um, you know, this necessarily excludes a lot of the people who needed the money the most and the fastest, right? Um, you know, from your vantage point, I'm really curious to hear some of your observations um, about how you're seeing money move in this moment and, you know, specifically how 
um, you know, how we should be thinking about some basic design principles and features um, if we really want to compensate for some of the shortcomings of previous efforts to get cash to people who need it. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I think it's a very important topic. Um, and just like how the pandemic has exposed a lot of issues, it has also exposed the uh, or exasperated the issues we see with the broken financial system. But I must start by saying that I really applaud the efforts that the stimulus package has done. You know, we haven't really um, spent too much time evaluating if the processes work, if the systems work, and the government just launched it, and that's the best way of innovation, right? You launch it with knowing that uh, there are a lot of breaks in the system that we need to identify. What we've seen through our work is, like you mentioned, is uh, not everybody is able to pass through the eligibility criteria. Right. And the eligibility criteria is one, and people who are already included in the uh, traditional financial systems are the easiest ones to reach that. A lot of uh, fintechs and other organizations have really accelerated our work, just like PayPal did. And we created systems where people are able to receive their stimulus checks through uh, either check capture or direct, direct deposit uh, capabilities. While we stepped up, we also realized it's still not enough because a lot more people still sit outside of the system. What we think is causing this also is because uh, some of the policies that were created years ago in the interest of people are also excluding the same people. So what I would really recommend is that we all come together in the ecosystem to work together. That means we have to look at uh, issues from uh, are we having the right AML restrictions or the know your customer restrictions? Can we innovate there together so that we are not um, adding more fraudsters into the system, but at the same time, not penalizing the good people as well. Are there alternative documentation that we can look at to increase the eligibility criteria? Right, That's all on more people getting into the system. But then once people are in the system, can we also get it get the funds into their hands as quickly as possible with a minimized, minimal cost to it? For a lot of us who, who bank, I think it would be absurd if we are asked to pay a fee to receive our paycheck into our bank. But then with the stimulus checks, a lot of fees are included because the ecosystem has a fees across the board and we are passing along. And as an example, PayPal is waiving up to $2 million in fees for the mobile check captive feature. And this is not fees that we, we um, uh, incur, right? This is just a pass-through fee. But then everybody has to run a business, but this would have been $2 million back into the hands of people that wouldn't have to be paid as fees. We have to think about those structures as well. And then post that, the last thing I'll say, is the support support structure. By that, what I mean is we are dealing with a lot of issues, not just at PayPal, but also in the ecosystem from other partners, where the stimulus checks and funds are missing, if you will. Right? They, you know, there, are, uh, there are people, customer service reps, trying to track down where the money is sitting. That just means that there are more uh, improvements and operational efficiencies we have to gain throughout the system. Uh, all this just indicates that we all have to work together, right? Private sector, government sector, nonprofits, uh, policymakers, everybody has to co-innovate how to go from this new normal into an environment where more people are able to receive these cash payments in a way that works for them fast as well as very cheap. Thank you for that. Um, we have like four minutes before we conclude. Um, so I'm going to throw you a, a softball here. Um, uh, I, I think one of, um, I was being totally facetious, by the way, um, so steady yourself. Um, you know, a, a concern that I have um, with um, really the large scale need um, in this moment to access some of the public supports that already exist. And really the demonstrated insufficiency of those is not only um, the lack of resources that are going to people who need it, but um, what not getting those resources and really the punitive and paternalistic process, the demeaning um, and stigmatizing, right, um, experience of trying to access these public programs is creating um, just a scarring effect, right, on people's expectations that, um, you know, government 
can be a force for good in their lives, right? The diminished institutional trust that they have. Um, and Aisha, this um, really came through so clearly in a conversation that I had a couple of years ago with one of your moms, you know, after, you know, multiple efforts at trying to get on TANF, you know, traditional cash welfare, um, and constantly having her paperwork lost and ring applying. Um, Mississippi, it's worth saying, has one of the lowest TANF acceptance rates in the country. It's less than 2% of families who apply actually get approved. And for those who make it through, you uh, get less than $2 a day. Um, but after that process, you know, she said, I just, I just stopped trying, right? She's like, and I know what the government thinks of me, you know, when you ask for help, um, they know that, um, they know that you have no value. I mean, it was just such a gut punch, right? But to think that this could be such a commonly shared experience. Um, makes me feel like not only um, not only does the bar have to be set at you know meeting this basic um, material need, but setting the expectation that you know these needs are going to be responded to, that people have the ability to influence those outcomes, influence influence the policies and the systems that impact them. So um, really, kind of a last closing question: What do you think is necessary for that to happen, right? To earn back, earn back trust, to demonstrate responsiveness um, for the people who have been excluded um, over and over and over again. I, I, can, I can add a comment. Uh, I think what you highlighted is that, you know, lack of access to financial services or just money in general, it's not a financial service problem or a financial health problem, it's a dignity problem, right? That's what we are, we are noticing. Uh, we can definitely leverage the power of technology and uh, a digital world to minimize some of that because you're removing the people and the judgment and the emotions out of it and are trying to simplify everything. When somebody can easily access their SNAP benefits through their app and, you know, nicely go to a checkout lane and pay for their food, there's no stigma about that, right? So I think we should be able to leverage that while at the same time, we're also making sure the people involved in the process across the board also don't treat this as a diminishing issue, but just a situation that somebody is going through and treat it with empathy. Yeah, so I don't think right now, um, that was a very loaded question. It was a very heavy question, Rachel. So thank you for that. But you're up for it. Yeah, I don't know if right now, if trust um, in the government is something that can be won back in this moment. Uh, we are in the midst of having conversations about opening the economy, even with the understanding that lives will be lost as a, you know, as a result of that. So we have consciously made a decision to put economy over people in this instance. So I don't know if we can say that we can get to a place in this moment where we can trust the government. I do think what we can do, though, in this moment is that when history writes itself about the COVID-19 pandemic in America, that we can say that the government did try to show up and give its constituents what they needed in order to be okay in that moment. But I think trust is a little too heavy of a word right now. Yeah, Charlie, I I, related to that, I mean, it's really hard to rebuild systems in the middle of the crisis. And I think the underinvestment in these systems we're seeing play out now where you look at unemployment, for example, the inability of states to set up this new program, the inability to do wage replacement, just like, but I want to say, I mean, this is probably, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it like, this is intentional, right? It's it's intended to create barriers in design to people accessing the program, right? Like read about the Florida unemployment insurance system and how that was designed. It was intentionally designed to do what it's doing now, which is to completely collapse and force people to go outside and wait in line for hours in order to access benefits that they're supposed to be getting. And it's designed, it's, it's, it's on purpose. And the reason it's that this happens is that people do not pay an electoral consequence for the way that systems are designed. And I think it doesn't turn into a salient, people don't connect the dots, right? They And the people who are designing that way are not necessarily interested in people saying, boy, I had a great experience with that government program. 
maybe we should do more to support people through you know additional government services they they say boy i really hated that experience maybe we shouldn't let the government do stuff uh so it kind of is mm -hmm. self-fulfilling right uh and so you know one of the things that uh, daniel patrick moynihan used to say was if you have contempt for government you'll get contemptible government and that's what we've gotten for from 40 years of kind of running it down and so i think we need to sort of be careful the, I, I worry that the solution sometimes is just to walk away or to say, ah, you know, the, the solution is to invest again, to, to get out and sort of hold people accountable when they're creating those systems like that. Uh, and I actually see a, a way forward because I think people are really fed up um, and hopefully we can turn that, that energy into something that reinvests, that makes it work, that builds that trust that, as Ayesha said, it's going to be really, really, really hard to get back. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the Florida UI example. Um, it was really remarkable seeing one of the administrators, right, say that, uh, you know, they didn't design the UI system there to help people who needed it. They did it to save taxpayer money, right? Um, right. And this is something that we have long known about other um, social safety net programs, right? They're there to ration resources that help them form follow function, right? And if you're set up to um, save taxpayer money, then you're necessarily not moving the resources to the people who need them. Um, I think that is something that is so visionary and critical about the work that Ayesha is doing. Is she's starting from a place of, what if we actually designed a policy that was set up to help people? What would that look like? And we know that we're doing it right because they're, um, they're on the ground floor, right? And figuring out what that looks like and evaluating how it's performing. Um, so making sure that there is more accountability that there's built out um, very much as you said, Charlie, is definitely, I think, one of those features that we need to think about when we are at the point of reconsidering how these systems should work um, and, and who says whether or not they're working. Um, thank you all so much for being part of this conversation and this is definitely just the beginning. Um, thank you also to panel one for those of you who are still online. It looks like it's almost 200 of you. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, if you are, uh, if you like what we, you heard today, please come back next Wednesday where other colleagues are going to be hosting a conversation. Um, student loan debt is cancellation. What our economy needs. Thank you all so much for joining us and we look forward to being in touch.